I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Ariana Huffington, co-founder of the Huffington Post, the news website. Ariana launched the Huffington Post in 2005, and the company was acquired by AOL in 2011. Also a prolific writer, Ariana has written more than a dozen books on topics including feminism, Maria Callas, Picasso, the Greek gods, and well-being. She's also been a talk show radio host, a wife of Congressman Michael Huffington, a candidate for governor of California, and she's a mother of two girls. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jessica. I'd like to start off with your early life, because in a way, I think it uh, helped to inform what you are doing now. Your mother was a Russian. She and her family moved to Greece after World War II, and your father was Greek. How did they meet? So my mother was actually Greek from Russia. You know, they were like mm-hmm. Greek refugees from Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, they met shortly after the Second World War when uh, my mother was recovering from TB mm-hmm. and had been told that she wasn't going to be able to have children. And my father was recovering from having spent the war in a German concentration camp because he had been publishing an underground newspaper uh, during the German occupation of Greece. Mm -hmm. They fell in love, and she got pregnant. (laughs) You describe her as having Greek chutzpah, and you didn't have it easy. Uh, Your parents separated when you were 11 years old. Uh, Your father was a philanderer, and your mother uh, supported you both. What did she do? Yes, well, she basically had this incredible sense that uh, we were not limited by circumstances. So she would borrow money. She had uh, some support from her brothers. She had a lot of brothers. Mm. And we lived in a one-room apartment in, uh, in Athens. But when I looked at a picture of Cambridge in a magazine when I was in high school and I said, I want to go to college there, and everybody else laughed, my mother said, well, let's find out how we can get you to Cambridge. And and that was really her spirit. And she picked you, through the three of you up, and you moved to Cambridge upon your acceptance. Yes. Uh, well, my sister stayed in Athens until she completed high school, and then she went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts mm. in London. So the whole family, the three of us, <laughs> moved to London. And I want to make it clear, we were close to my dad, who was um, sort of a brilliant intellectual and a journalist all his life. But having sort of survived um, the concentration camp, he he had a sense that somehow life owed him and he didn't have to follow the standard rules. When did your father die? My father died actually just a few months before my mother, both of them in 2000. We, we talk a lot about being influenced by your mother. What about your father, other than the fact that he ran an underground newspaper and there's that connective tissue in the journalism front? What other personality traits would you say are, are, are similar, even in your private moments that... Well, my father was a a wonderful writer. He wrote a book, actually, about his experience in the concentration camp, and he kept starting newspapers, and they all failed. Maybe that's why I'm never going into print. (laughs) But he definitely gave me that love of journalism, that that love of um, 
actually even seeing something being produced. Mm-hmm. And he was a real intellectual. I mean, you could sit down and discuss Nietzsche and Schopenhauer with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was also a serial philanderer. And when my mother complained, he told her not to interfere in his private life. You mentioned that you went to Cambridge, uh, although your first foray internationally was in the United States. When you were 15, you were an exchange student uh, in York, Pennsylvania. (laughs) What was 15-year-old Ariana Huffington like? How would those families in Pennsylvania describe you? (laughs) Basically, I just started learning English. I'm sure my accent was even worse than it is now. Uh, But I I loved people. I loved meeting new people. Um, I was intensely curious, so um, I wanted to learn everything. I remember one one day when they told me that they had set up a blind date for me, and I assumed that the guy was blind. And so, (laughs) so I was being very solicitous and surprised that he could navigate his <laughs> his way so well for a blind man. So I learned a lot about um, American habits and jargon. How about your sense of self? You are um, a self-starter and confident, and was that evident from even your teens? I, I definitely wouldn't say I was super confident. Mm-hmm. I, I had this voice in my head that um, took me a while to actually deal with. When I write about in Thrive, I call it the obnoxious roommate living in my head. You know, that voice of self-doubt, of questioning. It was incredibly self-judgmental. And then you had your mother to counter it. Yes, and also gradually learning to to deal with that voice and, and make sure that I knew that the voice wasn't the truth and the voice wasn't who I am. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Ariana Huffington, co-founder of the news website, The Huffington Post. I want to talk about your life post-Cambridge. The first love of your life, uh, Bernard Levin. Uh, He was a a British journalist, and you met on a game show. Can you describe that briefly? Um, It was a game show called Face the Music. It was like a classical music quiz. They would play a little piece of music and you would have to guess what it was. But before I met him, I had fallen in love with his writing and I used to cut out his columns from the London Times and underline them and put them in um, <laughs> put them in files. Probably I may, might have had some pressed flowers in there. Uh, so when I met him, I was very nervous. You know, he was twice my age and half my size. Mm -hmm. And he invited me for dinner two weeks later. And I literally spent two weeks uh, prepping for dinner. Um, Not uh, beautifying myself, but um, reading everything he about all the topics he was writing about, Northern Ireland and the Soviet Union, etc. Anyway, we ended up together for seven years, Mm -hmm. but he never wanted to get married. And he never wanted to have children, which was even more important because I was very clear I did want to have children. 
Um, and was a coincidence. You you wrote a book. Your your I believe it was your second book or third book uh, about. Uh, it was a biography about Maria Callas. Yes, my and third book. Uh, it it was striking to me the parallels uh, between you and Bernard and and Maria and uh, Onassis. Was that in your mind at all when you wrote the book? How there's this profound love affair that you you both the four of you had uh, <laughs> ended similarly. Well, Harris ended much more tragically because she actually did get pregnant, as I wrote in the book, uh, with Onassis, and he um, convinced her to have an abortion. And and on top of it, she, you know, she died of a heart attack, truly of a broken heart, when he married uh, Jackie Kennedy. Um, in my case, I I left when I was thirty and moved to New York, and um, you know, life is very mysterious. Uh, my whole life, everything that happened to me, my children, the Huffington Post being here happened because a man wouldn't marry me and I didn't trust myself to stay in London and not go back to him. This move to New York, uh, which really was a, a, a critical pivot moment personally and professionally, found you in Upper East Side society quite immediately. You and also your mother uh, rented a townhouse on the Upper East Side. Yes, my mother and I and my sister, we all moved together to New York to this beautiful townhouse that we rented. And my book on Maria Callas had been published and was a big success to everybody's surprise, including mine, because originally it was commissioned as a small uh, opera story. We're talking about your books. Your first book was called The Female Woman, which you wrote in 1974. You were 23 years old. It's striking your metamorphosis, the different stages that you have lived in your thinking. I don't know many people who have so publicly leaned into their initial views only to then write books or articles about uh, such views that are on the other end of the spectrum, yet you've pulled it off. Actually, everything I said in The Female Woman is what I still believe. Uh, I'm sure I would have written it better, and uh, the language would have been different, but the principle of The Female Woman was... uh, in response to what was happening at the time, which was a period where women were only respected if they had a career, where women who chose to be mothers and were willing to make the financial sacrifices even were considered to be victims of social conditioning. There was a tremendous amount of uh, anger at men. So The Female Woman was really a book which fully honored the feminist movement, fully honored you know, the need for equal pay, equal opportunities, what I called in the book women's emancipation, as opposed to the, what women's lib, quote-unquote, was at the time, which was... Uh, an incredible glorification of the career woman. Yet the reputation of it was that it was a conservative rebuke of the tenets of the feminist movement. But to your point, maybe the words could have been tweaked or restated. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was 23. Yes, I'm sure I I would hope they they would be tweaked. And I'm going to keep my 23-year-old writing under my bed. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to, to talk about your life online. Your foray into online journalism was with a website uh, called resignation.com, which called for the resignation of President Clinton. How did you go about launching the site? Because these are the early days of 
online. Yes. Well, I basically felt that uh, it was absurd to try and impeach a, a president for what he had done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, it was really unfair to drag an entire country through years of um, impeachment and basically taking our eye off the ball in terms of those left behind, the economy, and and, and resignation.com was really a site about the, the importance of resignation as a political tool and how often throughout history it had been used for noble purposes, you know, to to disagree with someone in your own party, to save a country from uh, going through um, an unnecessarily challenging time, etc. And so that was really the purpose of the site. And I felt that so much of the conversation had started moving online. And I felt being able to have an ongoing discussion of a very important topic could only really be done online. So it was as much, you, you thought, a strategic logistical uh, solution to have him resign versus be impeached right. uh, than a, a moral one. Um, oh, yes. It was definitely a strategic one. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Ariana Huffington, co-founder of The Huffington Post. We'll hear more from Ariana coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Ariana Huffington, co-founder of the online media platform, The Huffington Post. Ariana launched The Huffington Post in 2005, and the company was acquired by AOL for $315 million in 2011. The Huffington Post won its first Pulitzer Prize for reporting in 2012, making it the first online-only news site to do so. Ariana has written more than a dozen books on topics ranging from Picasso to Greek mythology. Her most recent book, Thrive, is about well-being and what she calls the third metric. She's also been a talk show radio host, a candidate for governor of California, and she's a mother of two girls. And then there's Ariana Online, which was the precursor, in a way, uh, to the Huffington Post. Can you describe that briefly? Well, yeah, Ariana Online was really a site, the first site I launched that to deal with all my writing. And, uh, and my mother even had a column that we called Ask Yaya, which is the Greek for grandmother. She would get a lot of questions about relationships. People would ask, ask her questions, and she would literally sit in, at the kitchen table on a yellow pad and write the answers, and we would transcribe them and, and post them. This is in the early days of the blogging and uh, online citizen journalism. And did you how, did somebody teach you how to navigate online? Or yes, absolutely. And and I was very intensely curious about what was happening online. And I wrote a column, which was really a love letter to the blogosphere. I remember at a bloggers convention, I was given an award for my support of, for the blogosphere. So. Um, In a way, when the Huffington Post was launched in 2005, part of what I wanted to do was to elevate the status of bloggers because at the time, bloggers were seen, were caricatured really as as, uh, people who couldn't get a job and they were living in their parents' apartment or basement and and blogging in their pajamas. Which there's nothing wrong with. Nothing (laughs) wrong with that. It's actually a great thing to do. But we brought in Arthur Schlesinger, Norman Mailer, Nora Ephron, 
and who had no hierarchy, so they they could find themselves next to an unemployed teenager who had something interesting to say. And there was a um, equality test, you know, it wasn't a free-for-all. So it began to change our perception of bloggers. Huffington Post was, uh, you know, a way, as you said, to elevate the blogosphere. You mentioned Arthur Schlesinger. Was he your first blogger, the historian? He was the first person I reached out to. I reached out to 500 people who were friends. And he was the first because I thought he... He was such an amazing voice who had lived through the whole century, and I'm sure he he was never going to be online Mm -hmm. unless it was made really easy for them, Mm -hmm. for people like him or Norman Mailer. And uh, and yet I would love to hear what he had to say about the issues of the day. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. I remember when President Bush at the time gave a speech that included something about the Yalta Agreement and... Arthur Schlesinger had been part of it, and he faxed me. He would fax me his blogs, why he disagreed with what the president had said, and we posted it. And it was really what I had wanted to achieve, to have like an instant conversation around the issues of the day. To what extent was Kerry's loss, uh, the presidential candidate John Kerry in 2004, a catalyst for starting the Huffington Post? It's been said anecdotally that it was almost an answer to the Drudge Report, which was this conservative venue. Can you speak to the catalyst for starting the Huffington Post other than wanting it to be a soapbox for bloggers? So, you know, we had a lot of different elements um, that we wanted to bring together for the Huffington Post. One was a great platform for um, people, some well-known, some not, with interesting things to say and do it in real time. The other is was an aggregation of news. Uh, and the third was um, original reporting. Um, but these were sort of the three elements plus commenting that were sort of the essential elements of the Huffington Post at the beginning. You brought in venture capital. Um, not uh, at the beginning. Not at the beginning. In what way did bringing on capital help to change your thinking about what the Huffington Post could become? Because in the beginning, it was just a platform. And why does that need capital? In the beginning, you know, my co-founder, Kenny Lair, and I, put in or raised the money to launch it. But then as we wanted to expand and grow faster, and we brought in SoftBank with the, the original infusion of capital. Uh, along with uh, Oak being a Oak third was round. The third round. Fred Harmon, who came in and joined our board in 2008. That was really a great, um, a great moment. First of all, it was the time... Um, just uh, just when the financial world collapsed, when very few people were making investments. So uh, it was really very brave of Fred to come in and um, invest in the Huffington Post, over $20 million, and make it possible for us to really develop a sales force, hire more journalists, and be able to grow in all the areas that um, that we wanted to grow. In what way is the success of Huffington Post also um, a technology story? Oh, definitely. I mean, the Huffington Post is a media and technology company. I mean, we had um, a great um, CMS uh, 
content management system. system. We had, uh, from the beginning, dashboards available to editors that gave them instant feedback mm-hmm. on how stories were doing. Uh, that made it possible for them to tweak headlines, um, to respond to readers, to be very connected with our readers and more and more our viewers too because we started doing video. Regarding the the content, uh, the management system, this allowed content to go uh, viral and to focus on what was working almost in real time. This was innovative uh, and Jonah Peretti and Paul Berry, um, they were your technology gurus, Yeah, Jonah was our first CTO and then Paul was our CTO and they were absolutely wonderful. There was criticism uh, when AOL bought the company, bought Huffington Post, that, well, citizen journalists weren't being paid, yet the shareholders of Huffington Post had a, had a payday. It's not unique to Huffington Post. How do you rec- reconcile the economics of citizen journalists not being remunerated for their work? There are actually um, two elements to the Huffington Post and to many other sites. One is a journalistic enterprise Mm -hmm. where we have over 800 journalists, editors, reporters who are very well paid. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, we are pioneers at making sure that um, we have workplaces that are very sustainable with um, nap rooms and email policies that make it clear that employees are not expected to be on email once they're off work. Mm -hmm. And we're a platform. The platform is really an opportunity for people who have something to say and want to use it to have distribution, to have very wide distribution. They can use it or not use it. It's entirely their decision. And they're primarily bloggers. Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk about citizen journalists, we talk about our own reporters, say, writing a story, as David Wood did, um, the story of returning vets, for which we won the Pulitzer. And at the end of each story, he would invite the community of vets and their relatives and friends to write about it. Now, Mm -hmm. they would write because they wanted to tell those stories. Self-expression has become the new entertainment. A lot of people would rather update their Facebook entries, update Wikipedia, blog on the Huffington Post or their Tumblr account. They would rather do that than watch more television or do other things that they might have done in the past. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Ariana Huffington, co-founder of the news website, The Huffington Post. Going back to the early days of The Huffington Post, um, how much was your vision of The Huffington Post uh, different from what it has become? Oh, my vision of The Huffington Post was always about all the things that it has become. It was always uh, about wanting to be a global media company to bring our combination of journalism and a platform around the world. And in every country, we partner with the major media players there, uh, like Le Monde in France or Asahi Shimbun in Japan. It's really great to see the same principle, you know, to have Francois Hollande, the president of France, next to a student in Paris writing about similar issues and having a conversation. So um, that that was always my dream. I didn't know whether we would succeed, and I certainly didn't know how long it would take. Uh, But that's why at every stage I wanted to speed up the process, um, like taking more funding, which would dilute us, but make it 
easier for us to keep growing. Uh, or sell to AOL, which was really fabulous for the Huffington Post in terms of, again, um, having more resources available to grow faster. Uh, and one of your in, uh, investors, incidentally, in the early days was Lori David. Yes. Uh, who is a friend of yours. Uh, and there's a story that you met. Uh, this is uh, Larry David's uh, former wife. She's an environmental activist. She said you walked up to her and said, can we hike? Oh, no. She was a good friend. We hiked three times a week. And on one of the hikes, uh, we were discussing, you know, what we were doing, as we always did. And, and I mentioned this idea of the Huffington Post, and she said, I mean. Um, and she was, um, you know, our first investor. Mm-hmm. And when Larry and she uh, got divorced, they kind of split the investment. <laughs> A lot of my hiking friends uh, became early bloggers. Um, another good friend, Kimberly Brooks, became our first our, our first arts editor. Mm-hmm. It was her idea to launch um, our art section. Mm-hmm. I remember for the first year we couldn't even pay her mm-hmm. because we we were just using our resources to pay for the essentials. But she said, "That's okay. I'll do it." We talked about Schlesinger. Uh, uh, from from him, uh, other bloggers came. And were there other catalysts that caused visitors to escalate, whether it was the technology innovation or uh, advertising dollars? Was there one advertiser that really helped to open the floodgates for others? or do you- Yes, actually, um, Toyota was one of our first advertisers. They had this idea of asking me and then our readers to take pictures with our Toyota hybrid cars. Mm -hmm. So I took a picture with my Prius, which is what I was driving at the time, and then invited our readers to take pictures with their Prius or other hybrid Toyota car. There was a complete separation of church and state. I mean, we could cover Toyota in our business section the way we felt it was right to cover it. And then... It led to another great advertising success when Johnson & Johnson came and um, we launched a dedicated section that they sponsored uh, on their main cause, which was and continues to be global maternal health. And these sections have been another great revenue stream for the Huffington Post. I want to switch gears and talk about your book, Thrive, which is about well-being. You write about a concept called the third metric. Could you describe what the third metric is? So the third metric was born when I collapsed from exhaustion, sleep deprivation, and burnout and broke my cheekbone, got four stitches on my right eye. And it started me asking these questions like, what is success? And and I looked around and I saw how in our culture we tend to define success simply in terms of these two metrics of money and power. And that, in fact, this is like a two-legged stool, and we need the third metric, which consists of our well-being, wisdom, wonder, and giving. You have been meditating uh, for quite some time. How long have you been meditating? I started meditating when I was 13 because my mother was very, very interested in meditation and yoga. But I was an on-and-off meditator, and it was really after my burnout and collapse that I started meditating every day. And in the book, I recommend that people start with five minutes. It doesn't matter how short your meditation is at the beginning. And also, there is no bad way to meditate. 
there have been scientific studies showing that meditating does impact the gray matter in your brain. What changes do you recognize having now been meditating? Yes, I mean, the changes are remarkable, and you're right. I mean, the book has 55 pages of scientific endnotes because I wanted to make it very clear to the skeptics that this is not kind of new-agey, flaky California stuff. This is real. This is modern science validating ancient wisdom. You, by the way, have very good posture, Ariana. <laughs> Where does that come from? Well, I do yoga every day. Even when I'm flying, I kind of have certain yoga postures I can do on the plane. Mm -hmm. And I find that, again, the focus on the breath is really important, you know, in terms of how we sit and, and how present we are. In addition to meditating, uh, one another component of the third metric is sleep. It's like the purloined letter, <laughs> Ed, Edgar Allan Poe's short story. Everybody's looking. It's a, it's a detective story. Everybody's looking for the answer, and it's the stolen letter on that's si sitting in right in front of everybody. And I feel like sleep, it's such an obvious one, yet nobody gets enough sleep. That is a great, a great metaphor. It is the obvious thing that's right in front of us. And I recommend starting with getting 30 minutes more sleep than you are getting now, unless you're one of the few wise people who get all the sleep they need. And you know when you've gotten all the sleep you need because you wake up naturally without an alarm. Did you have enough sleep last night? Yes. I make a point. I would say, you know, I'm a work in progress like all of us. I don't, I don't do any of this perfectly. But I would say 90% of the time I get eight hours sleep. My husband and I, for fun, buy up URLs. And one that we own is uh, supperby7.com, which basically is a corollary to what you're saying, which is have supper by 7 o'clock. Yes, because I love that. if you eat right before bed, that's not good. And if you eat early enough, you could almost go to bed when the sun goes down. Yes. And, and how wonderful to wake up when the sun comes up. We are such a post-industrial society where we're living artificially by all these electric lights causing such disequilibrium. Absolutely. I love supper by seven. <sighs> I, think, I think it really makes a big difference to allow some time after you eat. I also am a big believer in a transition between our wakeful life and our time asleep, whether it's uh, 10 minutes to have a hot bath or a shower, mm -hmm. uh, read something that's not online. Mm -hmm. I mean, my bedroom is a device-free zone. Do you carry around hard-boiled eggs with you? I read somewhere. Yes, I carry. I kind of carry around food because I'm, I've eliminated certain food groups like sugar and gluten. And so I think I need to ha carry some things with me to avoid starvation when there's nothing else around. It's funny because we all think, oh, here we are. We're the only one carrying a hard-boiled egg. But you know what? More people than not are doing such yes. things. What is your relationship to music? Oh, I love music. I, I love classical music, and I, I mostly write with classical music on, Mozart especially, and or Strauss waltzes when I, when I want to pick me up. Uh, but I also love country music. Who would know? <laughs> How about Schumann's Fourth? Schumann's Fourth was the um, was the the answer I gave correctly, believe it or not, um, on the face the music quiz uh, where I was with Bernard Levitt when I first met him. <laughs> You talk about how a life that embraces a third metric is one that is aware of one's eventual eulogy. 
what will people say about you? So this is so interesting, Jessica. I have zero interest in my legacy or what people say after my death, partly because I don't believe life ends with death. I see it more as um, kind of dropping off the rental car, which is our body, and flying off. Your rental car, when you drop it off, Ariana, will have traveled many miles. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. My guest has been Ariana Huffington. Coming up, we'll meet Michael Dubin, co-founder of Dollar Shave Club. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.